This week, we've got two-time Pulitzer nominee and 11-time best-selling author Stephen Kotler to talk all about aging and how we can help even dogs age more successfully this week only on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And one of the toughest topics that we will all face throughout our lives is how do we age successfully? How do we mitigate some of the cognitive decline that we are inevitably facing? And this week, we've got a dear friend of mine and an expert on all things associated with performance. That is Stephen Kotler. And guys, I just can't wait to have this conversation today. He was on the show a couple of years ago about his other book, which we'll talk about. But Becky, I can't wait to do this. So before we do all that, Becky, I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And Becky, this week, we are once again so fortunate to bring to the veterinary community uh, a kind of a rare spectacle, right? We're going to bring on one of the most decorated authors of our time, Stephen Kotler. And I got to tell you, you know, Becky, there aren't many podcasts that get to do this. I'm feeling kind of swag right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone twice. So welcome back, Stephen. We're really excited to have you. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. And if you aren't familiar with Stephen Collar, he is a New York Times bestselling author. In fact, 11 out of his 14 books uh, have been bestsellers. That's like 78%, guys. That's pretty good. Uh, of course, he has been nominated twice for the Pulitzer Prize. And this week, he's going to be talking to us about some of the work that he and his wife, Joy Nicholson, who's also an amazing, accomplished author in her own right, and she's also worked in the veterinary sphere for a long time. They're going to talk about their efforts with helping dogs at Rancho de Chihuahua. Stephen, thank you so much for joining the Viewfinders. Ernie, it's great to be with you. Becky, it's great to be with you again. Yeah, Stephen, the last time we had you on was when you were debuting your work of fiction, and that was Last Tango in Cyberspace, which I got to tell you is just a phenomenal read, guys. If you ever want just something to sit you know, back and leave the world for a while, it's a great story, a lot of undercurrents that you'll relate to in animal welfare and empathy. But I mean, Stephen, this week we're going to talk about your new book that's out February 28th called Nar Country. So I guess just if you have to do that little elevator pitch thing that you do, how do you describe to people that don't know what Nar Country is all about? How do, how do you tell people to go read it? All right. So let's just start with the title. The title is Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. Nar is actually action sport slang for gnarly. It's short for gnarly. And action sport athletes, despite their their reputation, have very, very precise language. And NAR uh, in action sports slang refers to any environment that is high in perceived risk and high in actual risk. Country is any territory or landscape, fictitious or real. Because NAR Country is a book about peak performance aging, it turns out that, that, that NAR Country is also a great description of our later years, high in perceived risk high in actual risk, and a really good description, scientifically at least, of the sort of gritty mindset we need to thrive during those later years. So that's the sort of title explanation. In the short version, it's a book on peak performance aging. 
Right. And Stephen, again, this is area that you have covered immensely over the years. I mean, you've got several books that have just, you know, been astronomical in sales. You've co-authored a couple of books with uh, your dear friend and an acquaintance of mine, Peter Diamandis from the X Prize and so forth. I mean, so Stephen, why do you keep going back to peak performance? I mean, I know your story and flow, but I mean, why are you so sort of, I guess, you know, captivated by this, this topic of how to make people be better, more productive, whatever, better versions of themselves? I think, you know, my career has been spent studying those moments when the so-called impossible, that which has never been done, gets done for the first time. Um, and I've, I've done this pretty much in every domain imaginable. And the same answers keep showing up again and again. And, and more than anything else about those answers, one of the, the, the overarching lesson is that we're all just capable of so much more than we know. And I'm so fascinated by this capacity and how we can extend it uh, and, you know, training it, studying it, um, all that stuff. It just, I, you know, it's, I've never gotten bored. I, you know, I get more and more interested every year that every year that passes and every year that passes, we get deeper and deeper and deeper into the research, into the science, into, you know, we're, I spent 30 years trying to sort of track down the neurobiology of flow state onset, for example, and we just published uh, a comprehensive review right. of what happens in the brain, right, as we transition into a flow state. So, you know, the, the science is getting better. We're learning more. And I like it's just endlessly fascinating. to me. I, I've never been able to let it go. Yeah, and viewfinders, just to let you know, I mean, some of his uh, bona fides, I mean, this guy has worked with the military, all the top corporations. I mean, he literally kind of got the whole flow collective thing going. So if you aren't familiar with some of his primary research and his books, I'll tell you a great, but I'll be honest with you, Stephen, I didn't think you could top the art of impossible. I mean, I quote that, I give that as gifts. I mean, that is absolutely, I think, the best summary of how to achieve next levelness, right? But somehow with NAR Country, you kind of took it in another direction, and I found it captivating. I mean, I want to thank you for the advanced copy, but I found this to be, I think, sort of a, a bookend to The Art of Impossible. I mean, I, I didn't think there was that much overlap. I don't know how you did it. So you, I think they're companion books, and I think yeah, the, right. re the reason is this. The Art of Impossible, uh, it, it's, I, I love that book. I really, I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, but the funny thing about The Art of Impossible it's a book about the science of peak performance, right? Right. And right. I, and, but why, so why is the word art in the title? And this is something I talk about in the opening in our country. It's because the application of the science of peak performance in our day-to-day -day lives in the face of like real world scary shit is an art. It's wildly individual. It's going to be different for everyone. It's going to be different in every situation. And it's an applied science. And if I would have put all the application into Art of Impossible, it would have been a 2000 page book and nobody would have read it. So, <laughs> right, it just would have been boring. And so what I managed to do in, in, in our country is because the book is told as an adventure story, because it's actually a giant experiment in peak performance aging, I got to do applied peak performance and applied peak performance aging in the real world in real time. And it'll, you know, it allows me, I think, to show a lot of stuff that you've never, I've, I've never seen appear in book form. The application, group flow, how does group flow work in, in real world situations is, is just one example of that. But there's, there's a bunch of stuff like that in the book and uh, makes me really happy because I, you know, as, as you pointed out a second ago, 
uh, at the Flow Research Collective, we train people in 130 countries and all kinds of walks of life. And the hardest thing to train people in is literally like, what does your day look like day after day after day after day if you're really doing this work? And now we have sort of an artifact we can point to and say, this is what it looks like. Yeah. And again, without getting into the book, and I don't want to give it away because it's such a captivating read. But basically, Stephen, you decided, and and you and I are about the same age. Uh, We're in our early to mid 50s. I'll put it as that. And, uh, you know, I'm 56. I think you're 55. Um, And so you decided a couple of years ago to tackle a new sport, which a lot of us have done. I want to get back to an earlier conversation you and I had years ago. But tell us about what you decided to do to prove some of the thesis and tenets of the art of impossible. What was the sport and why the hell, man? (laughs) So, okay, Uh, I'll I'll start with the why the hell and then we'll work our way (laughs) So okay. <laughs> the godfather of flow psychology, as, as most people may know, is, is a man named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Yep. Uh, he and uh, Mike passed away uh, during COVID. Right. Um, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, before before he died, we had one final conversation. It was like six months before COVID started. And I think he died about a year into into the, the pandemic. Um, and the convert Mike had spent this little known fact, but flow appears to be one of the main drivers of adult development. So how we actually grow up has a lot to do with flow. Mihajic Sepmihai has spent sort of his career on this and um, wrote about it in six or seven different places and different books, wrote a textbook on adult development and flow, things like that. And we were talking about this and he basically told me, and it wasn't like one researcher to another, it was one flow junkie to another. We were talking about his love of mountaineering and rock climbing. And he was now in his, in his mid to late eighties, he had had a stroke and, and he, out of nowhere, he just said, Steven, you got to be careful. And I said, Mike, what are you talking about? He's like, you do something your entire life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing mountains, forget about climbing rocks. Some days I can't get out of bed, have a backup plan. You got to be careful. So he was literally telling me sort of like one flow junkie to another, have a think, think about how you're going to access flow later in life. And my predominant flow activity is skiing and I'm a big mountain skier and, you know, and in big mountain skiing, the the way into flow is taking bigger and bigger and bigger risks. And I'm, I'm hearing Mike and I'm like, Oh, wow, no, 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 this is a bad idea. Like he's literally telling me that my backup plan sucks and get another one. And viewfinders, let me just give a little context. When Steven says big mountain, this is not what you find on your local ski slopes, right? He's going off deep country, helicopter drop in the middle of nowhere, and then bombing down. I mean, Steven, you do some pretty outrageous stuff that scares me and I'm sure joy. (laughs) That may be true. (laughs) Um, That may be true, but uh, compared to the people I, I ski with, who are actually really good uh, and former pros and things like that. Um, uh, I'm a complete amateur, but the point is, let's get back to, to, to what I was doing. So I decided, all right, let me pause. We've given you the backstory. Now I have to mention a couple things about peak performance aging and, and this, and then I'll finish the story. The traditional ideas on aging, is what you could call the long, slow rod theory. This is the idea that all of our mental skills and physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. Right. Now, that idea actually dates back to Freud, dates back to this weird comment Freud made in 1904. He's 
a few months before he turns 50. He's terrified of becoming turning 50. And he makes he writes that don't try therapy, psychotherapy with anybody over 50. Their brains are can no longer handle it. They're not elastic right. enough to take on right. the new information. Oh, anybody over 50 is basically uneducable. So the this idea is the sort of the foundation of the long slow rot. And by the by the 1990s, all that's changed is we put a lot of biology around Freud's statement, but it, everybody still believes it is true. And then starting in the 90s, in the early, it's really in, in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, a bunch of different information starts showing up that paints a radically different por portrait of what's possible in our later years. And I'm just going to give you a quick and dirty version of, of what we're learning. Um, and then I'll, then I'll talk about what I did. The short version of what we're learning is we used to think all these skills, mental and physical, just fall off a cliff and there's nothing we can do. Now we know while all of these skills do begin to decline, some as early as our thirties, we now know that they're all user to lose it skills. Right. And if we never <laughs> stop training these skills, you can hold on to them and even advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. So there's all this research in a bunch of whiz-bang fields that point at this, and a bunch of the data points at this very thing that Freud said, that old, old dogs can't learn new tricks. And there's a bunch of data that says, no, no, no. Old dogs can learn new tricks if you do it right, using a bunch of ideas out of flow science and embodied cognition and, and a bunch of other whiz-bang fields. So I basically took a bunch of ideas from the laboratory and put them together and said, these things are true. I should be able to learn how to park ski in my 50s. Now, park skiing is the discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps and on boxes and rails and wall rides and such. Right. It's very acrobatic. It's very, very dangerous. And the general thinking in, in the action sports community is if you haven't learned it over 30, by the time you're over 30, 35, don't bother. Over 40 and 50 is just downright insane and completely impossible. Right. But I didn't think so. And so to, to test this, and I really, Arnie, you have to understand, I thought if this thing takes me five years, who cares? You know what I mean? I'm going to have a backup. My plan was if I could learn to park ski, I'd have a million more entrances into flow than just big mountain skiing. And while the learning might be dangerous, once I actually had a, a, a like an, once I was an intermediate, I could sort of control the randomness and, and sort of learn much more safely. So the goal was how fast can I get to intermediate? And right. most people thought it was impossible. I made a list of 20 tricks that go that would cover zero to intermediate. And I figured five years, whatever. Turns out I went through my entire trick list and much farther in a single season, which was astounding. My ski partner, 20 years younger than me, had a was a former sort of pro athlete, sponsored athlete, but had gotten injured, retired, had three kids, had a career. Um, and uh, but he came back to the sport with me and he made the craziest progress we've ever seen. Same the same level I did. That was, you know, astounding. But it was also maybe like the coolest, most it was maybe the most radical pilot experiment anybody did ever run. <laughs> right. But it wasn't really data. It was just like this. It, this worked for me. This worked for Ryan. It was really tantalizing. Would it work for other people was the next question. So then the following season, we gathered 17 older adults, ages uh, 30 to 68. And in four days on the mountain using the same protocol, then we could talk about what that protocol was if you're interested. Um, we taught them all how to park ski and snowboard. Yeah. And this, if you go to narcountry.com and click on the 
peak performance aging experiment. You can watch a video of our experiment. You can read the white paper of the results. Um, but it was pretty astounding. And yeah. then because not everybody, I don't know why this is Ernie, but not everybody likes action sports. Um, <laughs> we stripped out the action sports. Um, though there are reasons that action sports or that kind of dynamic movement are important for peak performance aging. Come back to that. We stripped out the action sports and um, we took a group of, we took two different groups. Uh, one group was, I think, oh, about 110 people. The next group was almost 200 people. And we put them through a peak performance aging training. The primary goal, and we can talk, if, you, if you're interested in peak performance aging, the place to start is mindset. We'll talk about why in a second. But our primary goal in this training was, could we explode people's mindset about the second half of their life and really replace it with a positive mindset towards aging, which is the belief that the second half of your life can be filled with really exciting and thrilling possibilities and, and definitely your best days are ahead of you kind of thing. And that was the goal of the training and the training was unbelievably successful in that way as well. So now we're pretty confident that we've got that's something that that seems to work for everybody. It's been, it's been validated a bunch of times. We're now getting under the hood and taking apart the, the details and running like really sort of much more precise experiments. Our first one was pretty good, but we're, we're getting into the physiology now and, and, and trying to look at that stuff a little more clearly. But that's what uh, the book is sort of the story of these experiments. Right. And, and again, the narrative, guys, is following Stephen, you know, pursuing this kind of really extreme sport. But at the end of it, he distills it into 11 rules, right? So he's got this little template that you can follow. So I would argue, Stephen, and I know you do as well, that it doesn't matter what you're trying to do in life, whether you just want to start running or hitting the gym, yoga, meditating, anything, right? Like, I think these rules apply so universally. And, and again, good on you, because I think you somehow captured this really compelling story that just keeps the pages turning, right? But at the same time, you're dropping in really important lessons for life. And uh, Becky, you know, real quick for you, you know, so when when you hear Stephen talk about taking on an extreme challenge like, you know, park skiing and how you can have the second half of your life better, I mean, you're not there yet. I mean, what do you, what do you think about this? I mean, do you think there are lessons for younger people as well from what you've heard so far? I actually think it's super important, right? Because especially in our profession, I find it is like our entirety. We don't do things outside of veterinary medicine. We don't do things with people outside of veterinary medicine. Um, and so I think that kind of removing yourself from that comfortable environment and, and getting out there and doing things that are challenging, um, I too have done my best impression of snowboarding. Um, <laughs> and like, there is something incredibly, uh, I don't know, it, it's obviously exhilarating. It's also freezing and a little bit dumb, but there's just something about trying things that you've never done before being kind of successful, not dying anyway, um, and feeling that empowerment. So I think that's really important. The other part of this that I think is really important is in our profession, especially just just be well, because that's what this podcast is about. Um we have a tendency to get a lot of what, but not a lot of how, you know, and I hear so much about self-care and taking care of yourself and doing things that are good for you and like challenging your brain and whatever. There's so few how. So having a, a quote unquote guide, having some 
suggestion, some science behind the action, I think for our profession is incredibly useful. And I think there's a lot more to it than people might see at face value. Yeah. And Stephen, one of the things too, I think you did a great job at sort of maybe bringing to the forefront a concept that a lot of people don't think about. And that was authentic learning because, you know, we struggle a lot. Like, how do you learn this? You know, how do you, how can you do this, Stephen? You know, this is amazing. Well, I think a lot of it, just you identifying how you learn best, right? And then going all in. I mean, so maybe talk, talk a little bit about that, about, you know, like finding out how you best learn, because I think that's an important foundation for the book. Okay. So I'm going to actually back up two steps before that, give you way more information than you possibly want. And then we're going to go into authentic learning. Um, but I, I, I want to put it in context. Peak performance aging, successful aging demands that lifelong learning. And the reason is this. So while regenerative medicine longevity science, all those fields are, are advancing very rapidly. That's not really the focus of what I'm looking at. Um, we know if you want to stave off cognitive decline, Alzheimer's and dementia, lifelong learning is what matters most. Right. To put it into one, take it one step further, what you're really aiming after is wisdom and expertise. Yep. The reason is this. The prefrontal cortex is the newest part of our brain. It's also the most vulnerable to cognitive decline. If you want to stave off cognitive decline, wisdom and expertise are these very robust, very diffuse networks across the prefrontal cortex. You get a lot of redundancy of information. And if you don't know what wisdom is and expertise is, this is not a good definition. This is a good way of thinking about it. Essentially, expertise is everything we're learning consciously and wisdom is all the stuff that's non-conscious learning. It's not accurate. Those are not definitions of expertise or wisdom. There's a good way of thinking about the mechanisms underneath it. Yeah. And they produce really robust neural nets in the prefrontal cortex that tend to be because Alzheimer's and dementia and even cognitive decline tend to be localized, right? With these big networks, you have backup. So that's first and foremost. So if you're interested in lifelong learning, right, and you're interested in peak performance aging, if you want to put everything you need to know in a sentence, then, and a lot of what Becky said actually shows up in this sentence, you want to engage in challenging creative and social activities that require dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. Now we can talk about what all those words mean in a moment, but that's basically a recipe for how you wanna learn. And if you were to really take it one step further, you wanna engage in authentic, challenging, creative and social activities. That's the That would be the full sentence. Um, and the reason has to do with a bunch of different things. So first and foremost, we're going back to uh, Carl Rogers talks about authenticity and motivation. And Carl Rogers, the, the psychologist, the humanist psychologist argued, and, and there seems to be a lot of neurobiology to back him up as well. This seems to be true, though we're not 100% certain why, though I'll talk about some of what we know. Um, it turns out that our drive towards authenticity is works like a fundamental drive. I mean, it's as powerful as our drive for food or shelter or sex, that sort of thing. So we really have a drive to become who, who we're supposed to be. And one, as you pointed out, one of the easiest ways to do this is authentic learning, which is a really hot topic in sort of education right now. A lot of people have been talking about it. And 
it got a bad name because when it was first introduced, people were talking about learning styles and they thought, oh, they're, they're visual learners and auditory learners right, and kinesthetic right, learners. Right. And, and none of that's true. That's not true at all. It's really not. We like certain times we're kinesthetic learners, certain times we're auditory, certain times we're visual. It tends to shift depending on domains and, and, and a lot of other stuff. And we mix and match. And we're. But what is true is I'm an introvert. And as an introvert, I do not want to learn in public. I want to learn in private, very, very far away. So like when I was learning how to park ski, we weren't doing this, you know, often we weren't doing it in the train park. Just train parks are built underneath chairlifts for a lot of different reasons. But we would like, you know, be practicing things on, on runs that were very far out of sight because I didn't want the added pressure um, in terms of uh, there's also a, you know, with its physical stuff. A lot of people have different warm-up styles. So I have a very specific way that my body likes to warm up and I've developed it over you know, 30 years. And trying to deviate from that is literally a disaster, right? It just, yeah, it, yeah, my body does yeah. not function well. And this, so, and, and this puts me in weird situations. I'll be skiing with groups of people, right? Now we'll all get on the lift together and they'll, they'll go to the top and they'll wanna do something. And I'll, I'll be like, guys, I'll catch you at the bottom. Right, I, you know, right. first four runs are on my own kind of thing because I'm going to warm up my way, not your way. Um, so stuff like that. But to get at the neuroscience a little bit, because this is really cool and really important. So it turns out that obviously you can't learn anything, can't do anything without focus or attention. And flow also requires maximum focus and attention on the task at hand. So if you're interested in flow and peak performance, you need maximum attention. If you're interested in learning, you need maximum attention. And it turns out that attention and autonomy are coupled systems in the brain. So to put that with autonomy, right, we like driving the bus. We like being in charge of our own lives. That's right, one of the right. reasons that authenticity matters, right? Like right. when we're in charge, when we're driving the bus, we're, we feel safer, we perform better, et cetera, et cetera. They're coupled systems. If you cannot be autonomous with what you're doing, you can't pay maximum attention to this. So let's just talk about this outside of the context of peak performance aging for a second, just in a normal work environment, right? This can be tricky because there's always stuff we have to do at work that we don't want to do, right? It's we're, it's not authentic. It's not autonomous. It's, it's an issue. And you can't be great at your job if you can't figure out how to pay maximum attention. So what this requires is reframing. You have to look at the task you're doing and be like, okay, I gotta, you know, stitch up this dog. And man, I, this is the you know billionth time I've stitched up a dog. I'm not, not really into it, but you know, I care about animal welfare. That's really important. You know, that sort of thing. You have to reframe right. the task so you could find something that's authentic and, um, <coughs> and sort of aligned with your passion and purpose to really maximize attention, but it's, it's crucial for learning. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, viewfinders, what Stephen has done is just provided you with a framework to apply it to any tenant of your life that you, you find some need or you want to improve upon. So again, NARC country is just, again, it's just a roadmap and I would encourage all of you to read it. I would also encourage you to read the art of impossible. I think if you just did nothing else, but read those two books, 
uh, I think you'd be well ahead of the pack. Uh, Becky, real quick here, you know, as, as we're kind of putting this into terms that, you know, our audience can listen and maybe take away from, what are you, what are you hearing, you know, about this authentic learning? Because, you know, you are very deep in teaching veterinary technicians. I mean, obviously, both of us lecture a lot. What, what about Stephen's, you know, comments there sort of can we take out and bring back to us? I mean, I think in general, the the th- the thing about it is in well if you're talking to a lifelong learner right 40 right. years old in my right. master's program so i'm thinking to myself <laughs> how i will reframe my public administration homework later to feel better <laughs> about this task right. but i like that i think in general reframing stuff that sucks is is part of just like pulling us out of the funk that we tend to get in and i we you and i we've talked about this i mean like what you think about what what is in the forefront becomes your reality and so if if you are constantly talking about how much it sucks it it is going to inherently suck and in the skill Right. Because it is a skill. It's a presence. It's a practice. It's intentional to override your brain, your thought patterns and to put things in in a way that are more approachable for you. They are more consumable for you. So um, what I love is sort of breaking out of the old school styles of thinking in terms of how people learn, understanding that it is situational, understanding that we are situational beings and that these rules don't have to be so clearly established in our learning, in our educating, in our lives. And we can just kind of get out of these boxes we've put ourselves in. And I think this can be applied to so many different areas. Yeah, I love it. Stephen, you know, you and I have known each other now for 13, 14 years. And I remember some of our early conversations back in the day was we were kind of you know, it's curious that that we were reading the same people. You know, I mean, I was was reading Lakoff and you know Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and you know certainly you know Ken Cooper had made a huge impact on my life. You know, I mean, and speaking of skiing, you know, Stephen uh, Ken, you know, was doing double black diamond whatever. You know, in his eighties, you know, until he wound up breaking his legs. But uh, you know, so we've seen these guys sort of go before us. I mean, think about all the work at Harvard that Rudy Tavi's done for the past forever, right? So you know, I think I remember us having this conversation saying we're going to be the first generation that actually benefits from all of this stuff right before it it was just sort of this guesswork ephemeral you know network of well maybe right and we had like these outliers but i think both of us realized wow the the boomers for all their shortcomings they were amassing a, a multitude of information that we just were kind of applying to our lives so maybe i mean did did she sent me high was was that the catalyst for you i mean for me it was ken cooper you know when yeah. he started talking about you know squaring off the curve and i was like dude i'm i'm with you on this you know and he was way older than me at the time when i first saw him lecture and what was was mihai the the one who did it for you i mean no honestly ernie so you mentioned at the start that joy and i operate rancho de chihuahua right we're a hospice care dogs dog sanctuary and so we've done hospice care for 20 years and so this work starts two places it starts when I start experimenting on myself with regenerative medicine right around the early 2000s, trying to recover from Lyme disease. And I start playing and it doesn't work by the way, but I'm experimenting with it and studying it and writing about it. And simultaneously, Joy and I start Rancho de Chihuahua. And just so everybody, we can level set, we wanted to do all the shit that nobody wants to do in rescue. So we did hospice care, small dogs, and like, worst of the worst scenario. So you, right. if you were a, you know, uh, geriatric chihuahua with an abusive past, late stage cancer, heart disease, 
flatulence and mange, right? <laughs> like that, that's our dog, up. right? <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, right. So these dogs would all, you know, we had the greatest vet in the world, Kathleen Ramsey, one of the, one of the yeah. you know, godmothers of wilderness medicine. And Kathleen's like, she's a hardcore old school, you know, vet who doesn't pull punches. And she would say things like we'd get the dogs checked out before with, with her before they'd come into the sanctuary. And they would come in with these dire warnings. Don't get too attached. This dog's going to be dead in a, in a month. You know, right, just right. a good death. That's all we're doing here. And we had a healing protocol that we developed based on some basic flow science, basic evolutionary psychology, a little canine nutritional science, not, you know, nothing whiz bang, very, in a sense, low tech. But our dogs would live four or five more years, not like a couple of months, like four or five more years. And over, you know, after 20 years of this, it's almost 700 dogs have passed through our facility. And and when I talk about living three to four more years, I, they hike in the backcountry up and down mountains with us like four, five, six, seven miles a day. So these are not, this is like incredibly high quality living. And so the first question was, holy crap, what the hell is going on with our dogs? Now, right. you and I have talked about this because you very much, you know, aligned with this and you're sort of at the, at the more whiz-bang regenerative medicine end of, wow, we can double canine lifespan. Right. Um, we were, you know, the low end of that, you were the low tech version in a sense, you were the high tech version, um, but obviously it's a mix and match thing. But as this was happening with the dogs, the question I started asking is, you know, is this stuff possible with humans? And it was really tantalizing bits of evidence in a bunch of different places, but it turns out the blue zone research got started right around the same time we were doing our dog work. And the blue zone research was there's these long lived communities on earth, five or six that have been identified where people live on average about nine to 12 years longer than every place else on earth. And why is that? Yeah. And Dan, Dan Butner did a great job sort of think, bringing that story out to the world. Yeah, he did. Fantastic and, work, you know. And it's worth it's worth pointing out, by the way, not without controversy. For sure. It's worth pointing out that there is pushback on it. Right. And, sure. and I, I want to say that the reason I want to mention this is because he's a journalist. He built a giant panel of aging experts to work with. But like scientists get touchy when journalists interlope. And I know this <laughs> right. from experience. Right. <laughs> so some of that pushback is on that. And some of that pushback is on the sort of like biohacking um, results, which are the ones that are least interesting. But my point is if there are basically eight, seven or eight blue zone lessons, and if you look at them, they mapped almost exactly onto what we were doing with the dogs. And right. that's what caught my attention is that the blue zone, like there's certain biohacking stuff like resveratrol and certain, certain compounds like that, but really it's about moving around a lot de-stressing regularly, living with passion, purpose, and flow, eating wisely, eating a little less, and prioritizing connection and belonging, right? That's right. that's really what you're talking about. And that is essentially what we were doing with our dogs. And the point was, and you know, there's reasons that dogs are, 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 are often model organisms in science, much to both of our chagrin, but um, there's overlap between um, our biology that, and it's, you know, so that was where it really started is, wow, the same stuff I'm learning with the dogs is the same stuff that Butner and the showing up at the blue zones. And now, you know, that all this lifestyle research has been done sort of maps onto all that as well. So there's really good redundancy in a bunch of different fields showing the exact same thing. Um, and that's sort of where it started for me. 
And then, you know, it jumped to a whole other level after that conversation with Chick sent me high. It all just sort of crystallized into, oh, I'm going to do this now and, and really try to take it farther than anybody else. Um, and, you know, which I think I, we, we did manage to do. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, viewfinders, I think the, the point that I wanted to bring up here with Stephen, since we have him, uh, is the fact that this is this is actually, we're now seeing the benefits, the culmination of decades of work before us, and we're just now applying it. So if you're in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, and you're listening to this, be aware that there's a whole lot of things that you can change. And if you're relying on your grandparents for advice on aging, you may want to consult yeah, me, some of the new. Yeah, let me actually speak to that a little bit, because it's worth so i always like to say peak performance aging starts young and let's talk about for a second one of the benefits of aging so why is it that old dogs can learn new tricks this is a this is a gene cones research predominantly sort of the godfather of geriatric psychiatry and um just a giant in the field and gene discovered that as we enter our 50s there are just changes in the brain that result in whole new levels of intelligence, problem solving, creativity, divergent thinking, empathy, and wisdom. We gain access to all of this in our 50s. And so it turns out not only can old old dogs learn new tricks, if we get it right, old dogs are actually better at learning certain kinds of tricks than young dogs. But the question is, what do we have to do to get it right? And this is where peak performance aging starts young and starts to matter. So there's two sides to this coin. There's a physical fitness side and a mental fitness side. We're going to talk about the mental fitness because this is interesting. So there are, and a lot of this work, you mentioned some of the, the Harvard work earlier, the, there's been a couple of really giant long-term 80, 100-year studies of adult development. How do we become adults? How do we, how do we age successfully? All that stuff. Two of them came out of Harvard. One came out of Stanford. And What we learn there is there are gateways to adult development and there's problems, challenges psychologically that we need to solve each decade so we can continue to thrive into our later years. And so it starts by age 30. The research is pretty clear that we need to have solved the crisis of identity. We need to know who we are in the world um, by around age 30. And the reason that's so important is because by age 40, we need match fit which is a tight fit between, right, right, who we are and what we do for a living, or at least what we do with the bulk of our time, our strengths, all that stuff. And by 50, this is where it gets even stranger. And I think I have to say, this is a problematic issue for those people who work in and around the helping professions. By age 50, you have to forgive those who have done you wrong and you have to forgive yourself. Um, And if you can't set down that, like if you can't do that kind of self-forgiveness, you can't gain access to the empathy and wisdom that is supposed to show up in your 50s. And finally, in your 50s, if you really, really, really want access to these superpowers and you want to hold on to them later into life, one, creative activities tend to unlock more of the, the new levels of thinking and new thinking styles, which is sort of what everything flows off of. So creative stuff is really important, though. I think anybody who's working in, in veterinary medicine, it's a diagno- it's a creative diagnostic profession ultimately. So that does come built in. You're dealing with challenging creative stuff all the time. So it does come built in to profession. I will say that. Um, And you also have to train two things in your 50s. You have to train up your risk tolerance. Risk tolerances decline over time. 
And the more fearful we become, the less creative, the less capable of empathy and wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to train up risk tolerances over time, which is why challenging activities matter. Um, and you also need to be training up all five aspects of what's known as functional fitness. So earlier I said you want dynamic, deliberate play. Dynamic is a fancy term for us, any activity that trains up strength, stamina, agility, balance, and right. flexibility, which are the five categories of physical fitness that we need to be training regularly. And the, w, the World Health Organization is very, there's, we know exactly. So as we age, you want 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous uh, cardio work every week. You want two strength training uh, workouts a week three balanced flexibility and agility workouts in a single week. And that's a lot of workouts, by the way. And if you want, or that's why I said there's earlier action sports are beneficial. Action sports train up all those things at once and they train up risk tolerances. So it's sort of like great one-stop shopping for like a single thing you can do. You can learn to ski or snowboard or ride a mountain bike or all those, you know, be, playing badminton, by the way, tennis, even, even those pickleball, pickle, pickleball, <laughs> right, right. they will write like you just, you're just looking for something that's going to hit right. all of those at right. once. Um, so, um, I don't know where yeah. I was going with this other than, other than no, like the practicality it. You, of it. You nailed it. And you know, Stephen, I think one of the things too, for the viewfinders is like you and I, took two different routes as far as from a physical standpoint. So I took the ultra endurance route. So like I found some very unique gateways into flow through ultra endurance, right? So I would push myself to a, a place that was maybe uncomfortable, but I found that unlocked a lot of, of interesting thoughts and, and areas for me. You found it through very intense kind of higher risk activities. And, and I think that Stephen, you know, it doesn't matter, right? It's finding what works for you. And then as I got older, you know, I kind of transitioned away from all the Ironman and the ultra marathon type stuff and moved into ocean paddling, right? But the thing is what we're trying to say, I think both of us in our own ways, uh, especially if you've listened to my lectures over the past 20 years, is constantly find new challenges, right, Stephen? I mean, so I think that what happens is you get in your 40s and you just kind of sit back and you go, well, I can't learn anything new. I can't do something physical, right? I can't, you know, take on a new hobby or, or sport. And Stephen, the, the, the research proves that's just completely incorrect, in right? It does. And, but let me tell you what I did. Now let's go, let's cover a little bit of how I learned to park ski and how we taught, you know, 68 year old folks how to park ski and snowboard because we had a very specific methodology that is, is I think, very important um, we're talking about. So before I can talk about this methodology, I have to talk about the fact that flow states underpin optimal performance. One of the things that happens in flow is learning skyrockets. Okay, so right. when we're in the state, studies by the Defense Department find soldiers could learn 250 to 500% faster than normal. There's a yeah. bunch of biology underneath that. It's covered in Art of Impossible if you're interested, right. but right. That's, that's the short version. The second thing you need to know is that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. So if you want more flow in your life, these triggers are sort of your toolkit, and there are 26 that have been discovered. They all have one thing in common. Flow follows focus. It shows up when all of our attention is right here, right now. Right. And the most common, important flow triggers known as the challenge skills balance. We pay the most attention to what we're doing, the task at hand, when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill sets. 
Yeah. Right. So you want to stretch, but not snap. Metaphorically, that's about 5% difference. So when the challenge is about 5% greater than our skills, that's the sweet spot. Okay. That's what you need to know. Normally, now our research showed and what the, what the science started to show is that in older adults, because of allostatic load, which is literally the physiological remnants of trauma over time, yeah. and this could be psychological trauma, physical trauma, it doesn't matter, right? It, it builds up in our system and it produces something known as allostatic load. When you get to allostatic overload, that's one of the main causes of burnout. But yeah. allostatic load, what we realized is that in older adults, especially if you're dealing with like challenging physical activities, that challenge skills sweet spot has shrunk. It's no longer 5%, even if you feel like it is, right? So even if you've been a lifelong athlete and you think it's 5% wide, it's not. It's probably one to 2%. So our idea was this. We didn't want to teach people how to ski or snowboard, park ski or snowboard. We wanted, we took this sport and broke it down into eight foundational movements, really simple, basic movements, crouching, jumping, slashing, grinding, a 180, a 360, and a shifty, seven basic movements, excuse me. And we taught them, we taught two new movements a day on the hill. And the goal was not to teach them how to do tricks. So here's, a, here's another flow trigger. Creativity is a flow trigger. So when we link ideas together in a new way, that's pattern recognition. It produces dopamine in the brain. Dopamine drives focus into the present moment, acts as a flow trigger. When you look at a mound of snow and go, oh, wow, I can slide across that and grind across it. Right. That's pattern recognition, right? You've looked at a mound yeah. of snow, you've interpreted it in a new way. And so the idea was if we teach them these new movements and we emphasize, go one inch at a time, start with something you can do automatically, 100% of the time, zero fear, no chance of falling down. And we knew because everybody in our study group had to be at least an intermediate. If you're an intermediate skier or snowboarder, you can hockey stop, which means you can turn your skis or snowboard sideways and let it grind to a stop. If you can hockey stop and you do a hockey stop on a raised mound of snow, that's a grind or a slash, depending on where you put your weight. So we knew literally there was an inch that everybody could move, right? That was right. a starting point is, hey, everybody can do this because you know how to stop. So we're just going to, now you're stopping on a 10% angle, 20% angle, right? And right. that's how we built it up. And we knew by giving them these new body motions. And then we took them to the drain park and we said, don't look at it as like, oh my God, that's a big ass jump that I got to like, look at it as these are some mounds of snow that I get to interpret with new body motions. Right. The motions themselves, the creative interpretation of the terrain would drop them into flow. The flow would amplify learning and that was how they would learn their tricks. So we started and went so slowly. And really the secret was with almost everybody, um, once people got into the drain bark and learned these fundamental motions, they were so overjoyed, we actually had to hold them back. Like we had to slow people down. And this was the funniest thing, Ernie, I have to tell you. So uh, we, we, had a, we had a meeting, right, before our, before our first class where everybody got together and there, there was a guy, uh, Rick Wicks, who was in the, and if you actually watch the video, at the end of the video, you'll see him. He's like, my name is Rick Wicks, I'm 66 years old, and I actually caught some air in the NAR country program, which I thought was pretty good for an old guy. <laughs> so the reason that's such an amazing statement is we had this like team meeting before the, before the thing started, and everybody, all the subjects had a lot of trepidation. They were really scared. Sure, and Rick sure. was like through the roof because he was one of the older guys in the group. 
And he was like, look, I'm 66 years old. I've been skiing since I was 10 and I've never caught air and I'm not about to start now. <laughs> and we were like, that's fine. You do not have to catch air. Like, it's totally fine. You one inch at a time. We're going to meet you where you want to be. And, right. and, you know, sure enough, you know, he's, he, he was jumping and like, you know, there's a bunch, there were a bunch of 60 year old folks in, in, in the thing who, who did learn and did progress and all of them. Their, their, their mindset towards aging radically shifted. And let me come back to that in a second, why that's so important, because I wanted to hit on one thing. Um, and everybody in the group has like gone out and bought park skis now, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, I did, let me talk about mindset for half a second. This is just the, some of the coolest research ever. It goes back to the 70s, really in the 80s. Ellen Langer at Harvard worked a lot on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, Becky yeah. Levy at Yale has worked a lot on this. Of course, of course. But, um, what we now know is that a positive mindset towards aging, right? I'm really excited about the second half of my life and the possibilities right. can produce an extra seven and a half years of health and longevity. Yep. Yep. This means if you're morbidly obese, it's better to have a positive mindset towards aging than it is to lose weight. It's roughly the equivalent of quitting smoking. So really yeah. powerful tool. And I, I felt personally, one of the reasons this NAR country style challenge I thought was so important is the mindset of old really starts showing up in our 30s. And it's not attached to aging per se. It's actually attached to the fact that by around age 30, we start to have stuff in our lives. The seeking system, which governs our childhood, is fulfilled. We, we find that right partner, the right job, or we get an apartment that we like, or we start right, having things right. that we want to hold on to. And once that happens, we trade sort of the neurochemicals that drive us forward, right? We're mostly in our youth motivated by dopamine and norepinephrine. This is the play system, the seeking system, I'm trying to figure out who I am in the world. When we're teenagers, we start getting some pro-social neurochemistry, but around 30, we start to really favor serotonin as a feeling and serotonin, right? right, right? And right. that's that's about holding on to what we have, right? Being right. conservative, protecting and endorphins and, and oxytocin. This is all about like holding on to protecting it. So we basically stay with our spouses for the seven years that it takes to like raise kids to get them to the fact that they can function on their own, right? This is just basic yeah. like evolutionary science kind of thing. Right. And because of that, this is that mindset of old and it starts showing up really young. And, you know, Ellen was the one who really figured out that when you say something like a mind body connection, no, 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 that's so unbelievably real. You've got to really pay attention. The great, you know, the great version of this is her famous counterclockwise experiment where she took a group of 80 year old men and had them pretend it was 20 years earlier for five days. They lived in a monastery where everything was from it was 1981. Everything in the monastery was from 1961. They talked about current events in 1961 as if they were real. They had another group of 80 year olds who just sort of reminisced about what it was like to live in 1961. And, but the other group literally like put themselves back in there and really sort of shifted their mindset over like five days. And the, they measured everything they could possibly measure. And you can find this online, um, lots of lectures. And I think she talks about it in her TED talk. But on the back end, the physical improvements were so re were ridiculous. Stuff that you didn't actually think was possible. Their hearing got better. Their eyesight got better when tested on a <laughs> Snelling eye chart. Their arthritis went away so much that the subjects, their fingers got longer and they got taller and their gait changed. And it goes on and on and on. And the experiment was so crazy. It's been rerun like five times, three times as a television show. 
because they just nobody believes that it's possible, right? Right. right but right. you start looking at the results, and they're just shocking. So that changing that mindset towards aging is really important. And I found with a NAR style adventure um, that like going after an just a, what I thought was an impossible challenge for me, it just obliterated my old mindset. So that was, I think, the, the most important thing. But as a final thought, um, Becky talked about feelings of mastery and control earlier. And um, that's definitely what you get from this kind of like challenging learning. And from a neuroimmunological perspective, mastery and control are the two most positive feelings we get on this planet, basically. Um, and they're, they're both very powerful flow triggers and show up in flow. But both of them, um, these kind of really powerful emotions stimulate production of T cells and natural killer cells. Yeah, so, right. right um, so you have this like really direct immunological benefit from uh, these kinds of challenging activities. Gosh, guys, you can see we could go on and on all day. I do want to point out that uh, Stephen has been very kind to the Viewfinder community. And if you pre-order his book, which we'll have the links in our, our show notes, uh, you're going to get a tremendous amount of free tools and training. In fact, I think, Stephen, you said it's valued at over 1700 bucks. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great incentive for you to pre-order this book. And meanwhile, while you're waiting on February 28th, when NAR Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad comes out, go ahead and read Art of impossible. I'll include a link in the show notes to that as well, because I think that is just an incredible introduction to what Stephen's all about. And then while you're at it, you can go back and read any of his other 14 books, including his three books of fiction, which I, that's how I first got introduced to Stephen way, way back when he just finished up his uh, MFA at Johns Hopkins. And he wrote a little book that I found uh, quite uh, moving, uh, The Angle Quickest for Flight, which is still on my permanent bookshelf in our, our living room. So Stephen, it's been a long time. I can't thank you enough for writing this book and sharing your time with the viewfinder. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me back. I appreciate it. So again, go out and I want you to pre-order. I'll have the links down below. Read NAR Country. Go read The Art of Impossible. And that's going to open up your life in ways you cannot imagine. Becky, where can they reach us if they have any other questions about Stephen Kotler's books or anything or just want to give us a show topic? <laughs> We're just pictures of you out there trying this new thing videos yeah, yeah. please i i probably could grace you guys with a few of, of me learning to snowboard <laughs> one day when i'm feeling particularly vulnerable you can find <laughs> us on facebook and instagram at veterinary viewfinder and you can shoot us an email at veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. That's right. And again, Stephen Kotler, you can go to stephenkotler.com, but he is very active on Twitter, which we're kind of questioning that these days, Twitter, uh, but Stephen is yeah, you Yeah, by Twitter. the way, so uh, less active on Twitter these days, <laughs> less active on Twitter these days, and uh, but uh, more active on Instagram um, yeah, a little right. bit, uh, yeah. believe it or not, um, though I this think social media may have broken the world, but still yeah. active a little bit. Yeah, we have the same feelings, guys. Uh, we, we, Steve and I kind of watched the whole thing coming and going, and we were like, I don't know if this is, there's a lot of good here, but boy, we got to be careful with it. So, Stephen, again, thank you so much. Uh, please give my love uh, to Joy and all the dogs at Rancho de Chihuahua. My pleasure. Thank you. Guys, we will talk to you next week. Go start reading. Bye. 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 All right, Stephen, that was fantastic as always. But I was thinking as we were wrapping up, you might.